For the past couple months, we've been in a series called Form, um, talking about taking the shape of Jesus. And what does that actually look like? We read in the words of Paul that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, that we're moving from glory to glory. And, you know, we believe around here that it's not enough for us just to be inspired by the life of Jesus, uh, not just to receive good advice from the words of Jesus, but that there's some sort of dynamic interplay with God today that is transforming you and I to look more and more like Jesus, to be part of his body, to be his hands and feet, that wherever we go, the evidence of Christ uh, exudes from us. And um, that's a lot of what has guided this series, and we've been able to uh, kind of approach it from a lot of different angles. And a couple of weeks ago, I did a sermon called How to Read the Bible and Not Join a Cult, which I think was worth it just for that title alone. Y'all know how I love naming things. Um, but I really wanted to examine what is the role of Scripture in this process of spiritual formation? How does the Bible um, interact with the Holy Spirit in order to form us to look more like Jesus? And so I wanted to do kind of a second part uh, to that message tonight entitled The Word Behind the Words. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. So if you'd pray with me, please. Uh, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us. Lord, what a a blessed season we're in uh, with Advent that we really get to hone in on what does that really mean for you to be Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Lord, we trust you in that, that you're going to reveal yourself as you truly are through Jesus Christ as we encounter him tonight. Lord, we come with a high expectation of meeting you Um, coming open-handed before you and allowing you to shift who we are and to rearrange us, to restore us, and to renew us. Um, So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move tonight in us and through us, um, that we would be completely open before you as you are open before us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about how we read the Bible without joining a cult, um, a couple of kind of key phrases that I want us to start with as we're moving into uh, the main message for tonight. First of all, I was talking about how the Bible is the progressive revelation of God and his story. A lot of times we, we, we even get lost in talking about what the Bible is. But we recognize that it's this ongoing progressive revelation. Or another way to say it is perhaps that mankind is waking up to the reality of what God is really like. It gives us an appreciation for the story from Genesis to Revelation. Um, but that's not just where we, where we end things as Christians. We also believe that Jesus is the lens through which we read that whole story, that Jesus is the culmination of God's story. Jesus is the best demonstration of what God is really like, that God looks like Jesus, God has always looked like Jesus, and we didn't always know that. And so the Old Testament becomes the signposts into the mist the hint of what God is really like, but only so far as it points towards Jesus as the true demonstration of God's divinity. And so a lot of what I was kind of leading us to with that last message is what you might call a rational study of Scripture. There's a spiritual discipline of study, and it's incredibly valuable for us not only to read it as individuals and as a community together, but to, to, to rely on the brothers and the sisters and the mothers and fathers who have gone before us, those that for thousands of years have wrestled with these scriptures, have wrestled with the same questions that you and I have, and have come to some really surprising and beautiful conclusions. And we have the opportunity today um, to rest in that, 
um, to allow that to guide so much of the discipline of study as we really begin to discover what God is really like in Scripture. And so talking about that is kind of the more rational using our minds to approach Scripture in order to flesh out what God is really like. Uh, And tonight I want to talk about the counterbalance to that, which is the revealed um, understanding of Scripture that can only come through the Spirit. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to recognize that just by using our rationale just through study doesn't necessarily make us Christian. Just having a lot of knowledge and understanding doesn't necessarily bring us into deeper uh, relationship with God. There has to be something more attached uh, to that process that actually leads us into living relationship with God today and therefore allows us to be transformed. So this is a a phrase from the the end of my last sermon that I want to bring in as our main point uh, tonight. We approach scripture in order to have an encounter that leads to transformation. This is why we read scripture as Christians. We have this expectation that when we open up this book, when we begin to read the words of those that have come before us, that not just are we gaining some sort of knowledge, not just are we being moved by the prose itself, but something happens in that space, something divine that there's an opportunity for us to encounter God as he really is. And when we have that high expectation with Scripture that we're going to meet God when we enter into that space, everything changes. So last time, like as I said, I was talking about how the Bible is the progressive revelation of God and his story. Do you realize that 70% of the Bible is story? Think about the Torah, think about the history books, think about the Gospels, uh, the book of Acts. So much of it is story. Not only is 70% of the Bible story, 27% of the Bible, over a quarter of the Bible is poetry. Think about Lamentations as a collection of poems. Think about in the story of Moses, there comes a point where he just breaks into song in the middle of his own story. Think about uh, the Virgin Mary, whom we venerate during Advent, and she erupts into this song after the angel Gabriel visits her. Why is that? Why is so much of our scripture uh, story and poetry? Story doesn't simply inform us. Story immerses us. If God just wanted us to memorize a bunch of facts, we wouldn't have such a damn compromising book. (laughs) It's confusing, and it's weird, and it's strange, and there's things that don't make sense. If God wanted to just inform us of some facts and some lines, it'd probably be a lot smarter and a lot simpler, and we would just sit and memorize these things. But the beauty of story, the beauty of poetry, is that it's meant to move us. These kinds of writing kind of point us to the thing beyond the thing. That it makes us realize that wisdom isn't what's in plain sight right in front of us, but wisdom is actually found on the other side. When we begin to dig in a little bit deeper than what we're presented with on the surface. And so I believe this is so much of why God has given us story, why God has given us poetry, is that it's meant to move us and shift us. As much as it is to affirm us, it's also meant to kind of shake us up in our standard understanding of how things are supposed to work. So we begin to dig in a little bit deeper and not take the surface for granted. 
We see this in uh, Luke chapter 24. Um, This is after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Um, And there's these two disciples, and they're on the road leaving Jerusalem, walking to a small town called Emmaus. And and they don't know that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. The last they know, their Messiah, their Savior has been crucified, and the revolution is over. It's done. And they're walking away absolutely defeated, saying, "Where, where did we go wrong? Where did we miss it? This isn't how the story was supposed to turn out. And so Jesus appears to them on the road as they're having this discussion, but they don't recognize that it's him because he's been transfigured after his resurrection. And so when we jump in, Jesus is engaging uh, with these two men on their walk. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Even for the best theologians of the day, those powerful Jewish rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees, it was all sitting in front of them, but they couldn't necessarily put all the pieces together to realize this was the kind of Messiah that God was actually going to send. The the Jesus story seems counterintuitive. It seems upside down. How does God lose in order to win? How does God suffer in order to become victorious? So these men too, they've been growing up with these stories of Moses and the Torah and of King David and the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos and so on. They, They know the story, but it didn't turn out the way they thought. And so Jesus begins to lead them on this dynamic Bible study, going through all of the scriptures up until that point and revealing himself in it time and again and God's plan to rescue the world. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And I love that they did not recognize Christ until he enacted the symbol that revealed the story that was him as the true Messiah. And their eyes are opened And then Jesus disappears and they say those beautiful words, were not our hearts burning within us. There is no amount of plain reading of the scriptures that will enable your heart to burn. Think about the last time that you read a passage from scripture and something within you shifted. It realigned, it changed the way you see yourself, it changed the way that you perceive your world, it changed your opinions of God. There's something happening in that space more than just the words on the page. It's pointed you to the thing beyond the thing, the person beyond the person, because it is Christ within us that makes our hearts burn when we engage with his story. The Bible's job is to point us to Jesus. The Bible's job is to point us to Jesus. In the last message, I talked about the difference between literal interpretation of Scripture and allegorical, how it's actually more of this spectrum. But when we're asking those things about literal and allegorical, we're really having two different conversations. Did this actually happen is a different conversation from what is this trying to teach us. And they're both valuable conversations, but when we convolute them, we miss the mark and we fall short of what scripture truly offers us. 
And in similar ways, you often hear a modern debate, is Scripture infallible or is it inerrant? Now, these are just words in and of themselves, and a lot of places they're kind of conflated to be um, synonymous. Uh, but I want to kind of pull them apart a little bit and just explain what I've learned and study about what these things mean. Inerrant essentially means without error, that it is factually accurate. And infallible means cannot fail. And I think even when we look at what those two words mean, we realize the starting point for discovering what truth is is quite different. I think a lot of times inerrant, and again, it's just a word, perhaps you were raised in a very different way, and that's wonderful, but a lot of times we use the word inerrant because it treats the Bible as this kind of flat text that we're supposed to analyze. It's like, it's like a history book that you grew up with in high school, that you're just supposed to read it, and you're supposed to analyze it, and you're supposed to memorize it, and then you're going to take the test later on. But essentially, it's saying truth is found in factual accuracy. That's what truth really is. But I think when we talk about the scriptures being infallible, cannot fail, it begins to, ask, to, to, to have us ask the question, cannot fail at what? What is it that the scriptures cannot fail in doing? And when we recognize that the job of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, when our true intention is to come to that book to encounter the real and living God as revealed in Christ Jesus, it cannot fail. But we're on a whole different paradigm now. Now we're beginning to talk about where is that beautiful intersection of word and spirit. How many of you are familiar with the Jesus movement from the 1970s? Uh, there was this really powerful revival in this country, and it kind of started in Southern California. A lot of these young, dirty, smelly hippies started coming, uh, coming to Christ in these really radical ways, and it shifted a lot of people's understanding of what church uh, was supposed to be. Uh, the, the church that I came to uh, in Nashville when I came here uh, was founded as a vineyard church, and our uh, uh, founder, his name is John Wimber, and he was kind of at ground zero of this movement. And uh, John Wimber had these really powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit, and, and this was like this new charismatic movement of reclaiming the spiritual gifts and the life of the church and so on. Um, and John Wimber realized uh, very soon in planting this church movement the importance of marrying together word and spirit. You can imagine sort of another spectrum there between word and spirit. When we falsely divorce those things, they both lose meaning. And he gave, uh, he gave us this analogy that I think is so beautiful, that word and spirit are like train and train tracks. They're meant to go together. The word of God is like these, these railroad tracks that kind of give direction and movement. But if you don't have a train to put on those train tracks, it means absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're just rails. But conversely, then, the spirit is like the train itself. And it wants to move, it wants to go somewhere, but if it does not have tracks to give it direction, what happens to that train? It inevitably wanders all over the place and never gets to its true destination. And so Wimber taught us the value of recognizing that word and spirit go together. They hold one another accountable, and if we play our cards right, they're never in contention with one another. But word and spirit becomes that infallible place that we encounter Jesus as he truly is. Even in John chapter 5, Jesus speaks this uh, to the Pharisees when he's uh, arguing with them about Scripture. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
The Bible's job is to point us to Jesus. If we don't allow it to point us to Jesus, it has failed in its mission. But that's because of our attitude toward it. So the Old Testament is the story of how we arrive at Jesus as the answer for God's um, rescue project for the world. And then the New Testament becomes kind of the aftermath of the event. Last week I talked about, it's, it's almost like the, the, the meteor crash that leaves the crater and everybody comes around to discover what on earth just happened. We've had this divine event that seems a little bit beyond words, but we're going to do our best to try to describe it and give ourselves some direction to continue to encounter that God. And so the words of Paul and Peter and all of these other folks that wrote the New Testament are really unpacking the event that is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And so we must open ourselves to the living word behind the words. That's the purpose of Scripture, to lead us into encounter with the living word. You know, sometimes our language in Christianity is a little bit confusing because we talk about, do you believe in the word of God? And we're saying, do you really believe in the Bible? But it's the word behind the words that makes the word the word. I don't know if that's confusing to you, but that's how it works. It's the living word, the word that was before anything was written down on a piece of papyrus the Logos of God that was there from the beginning, that's the word that we seek to encounter. Do you realize that reading the Bible without the light of Christ is bad for you? Did you guys know that? Did you guys know that the Bible can actually be bad for you? That you can actually read it in really unhealthy ways? So you can read it too much and you can be obsessive to the point that it actually prevents you from encountering the real and living God? The truth is we have been given responsibility as the church, as the people of God, to steward well the gifts that he's given us. But when we hold them too tightly, we choke the life out of them, when we don't apply them in the way they're intended to be implied, we do some very damaging things. You can justify just about anything with Scripture. Consider what happened in this country not 150 years ago with slavery. And the position of so many believers was justified because the Bible says so. You can justify anything you like. You can find the Bible verses that will justify anything you like. And that's why it's so dangerous and it can become careless and cruel. But if you're approaching Scripture in order to have a transformative encounter with Jesus, well, that changes everything. That changes how we engage with God's story. And so all of this begs the question then when we're talking about scripture and truth and word, what exactly is truth? And I want us to kind of start this conversation here. Whenever we encounter truth, it transforms us. I want to postulate that the, the bedrock of what truth is is that it must transform us. When we speak of the Bible as truth, what are we really trying to say? There's this absolutely fascinating scripture in John 18, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And what we have um, is Jesus has been arrested, he has been beaten, he has been taken before the Sanhedrin, um, but the Jewish authorities can't sentence someone to death. They don't have that kind of power. So they need to go before the Roman magistrate in order to get the death sentence for someone. And so they bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman governor of Judea, has very little understanding, for all we know, of Jewish culture. And he's supposed to kind of mediate and decide, does Jesus actually deserve the death penalty? 
And what's so fascinating in this story is that we have uh, a Roman from Italy, we have uh, a Hebrew from Judea, okay? So, little pop quiz, let's see how much you know about world history. If Pilate is from Rome, what language does he speak? Very good. Okay, now if Jesus is from Judea, what language does he speak? Oh my goodness, you guys nailed it. What does he read? All right, good. Now, here's a little bit deeper question. What was, the mo- what was the trade language of the first century known world? Does anybody? Huh? Greek. That's right. Greek was a lot like English is today. It's kind of the language that people would use to trade between all of these different cultures. So the, the kind of fascinating background of this little passage that we're about to engage with is that we have um, a Roman who speaks Latin as his first language. We have a Jew who speaks Aramaic and reads Hebrew, and the common language that they would have had to speak in is Greek. I'm sure Pontius Pilate knew how to speak Greek. It's very likely that Jesus knew how to speak some Greek as well. So I want you to keep that in mind as we're reading this, John 18, verses 33 to 38. So Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And this is an absolutely fascinating conversation in Greek because not only do we have um, these kind of two languages butting up each other, but two cultures and two worldviews. So the word for truth in Greek, and if you're playing Ryan's sermon bingo, you're going to get one right here. The word in Greek for truth is aletheia. Okay, everybody say aletheia. All right, you're all experts in Greek now. Um, And what aletheia in Greek means for truth is an accurate perspective on reality. Do you have the right lenses? Are you looking at this in the right way? That's kind of what aletheia means. Now, in Latin, the the word is veritas. Everyone say veritas. Veritas. All right. Um, Veritas is a very similar word to aletheia. It means a factual representation of events. A factual representation. So both aletheia and veritas are these worlds, but also this way of seeing that truth is objective, As we might say in the West, truth is out there. Any X-Files fans in the room? (laughs) Truth is measurable, but truth is separate from me. You know, sometimes even in carpentry, we talk about a wall being true, that it's sound and it's well-built. But both of these worldviews that are very similar, the Romans borrowed from the Greeks, are about this external, objective reality that may or may not affect my world. And so it's no wonder that when Pilate's engaging with Jesus, he's asking factual statements. So you're a king. Give me aletheia. Give me veritas. And it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't just answer that. He says, you say that I'm a king. You're looking for veritas. But I tell you the truth. I have come to testify about truth. And all who are on the side of truth, listen to me. 
And there's a fascinating difference in worldview because unlike aletheia and veritas in the Greco-Roman world, in Hebrew, the word for truth is emet. Everybody say emet. emet. And emet, if you were to ask a rabbi, what is the word truth? What does emet mean? He'd say it's about God's faithfulness. You know, and for us in the West, we'd say, hold on, slow down. That's kind of a statement that I need to kind of put through the ringer. I need, to, I need to test that and examine it and kind of put it through the scientific method. What do you mean God's faithfulness is truth? And perhaps he'd expand and say, well, God's faithfulness is to form us and the world into his intended purposes. And it's fascinating that Amet, unlike Aletheia, unlike Veritas, is about this lived-in, up-close, and personal, dynamic encounter. That's what makes it true. You know, our inheritance as Westerners is that objective, measurable reality that maybe it changes us, maybe it doesn't. But in that Hebrew worldview, truth has to be up close and personal. It's something experienced. It's something that we feel in every fiber of our being. And the product of that truth is that it changes who we are because it's personal and relational. And so when Pilate walks away in frustration and says, Kides veritas, what is truth? He's asking categorically the wrong question because for Jesus, it's never been about what is truth. It's who is truth. See, earlier in his sermon, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I haven't come to tell you factual statements for you to memorize. I am truth incarnate. And when you have a lived-in encounter with me that's up close and personal and dynamic, you will change. And so when we talk about truth, let's take it to that next level. Truth becomes true only when it changes us. Only when truth forms us is it really true. Because now we're moving away from an intellectual assertion to the language of love. I've said it many times before, when you are in love, not just do you gaze upon your beloved, but the way in which you perceive everything else has changed. This is what love does. Love is subjective as much as it is objective. And when we are loved, and when we love in return, we cannot help but change. Go ahead and try. I actually think that's the difference between being infatuated with someone and being in love. Infatuation, there's nothing required of you to change because you've objectified your beloved. But in love, your beloved changes you. They transform you the way you see yourself, the way you see your world, the way you see your God. And so truth becomes true only when it changes us. Raise your hand if you came to Christ because you lost an argument. Nobody? Oh, weird. Maybe that's why they call us Christians instead of Biblians. Because this isn't something that you can just argue someone to the point where they eventually give up, but it's because they've had some sort of an experience with the real and living Christ, the Word incarnate, through who you are, through your words, through your actions, through your presence. That's what makes it true. The 20th century pastor Frederick Buckner said this, a Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing. But there's something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. 
That's the kind of testimony that we offer the world. So perhaps for us, when we're approaching Scripture with this high expectation that we're going to have an encounter with Christ that is going to transform us, we need to change the language in which we approach Scripture. And I always like to think of approaching Scripture as more like a painting than a spreadsheet. I want to give you an example of what this is like um, using one of my favorite paintings. This is La Guernica uh, by Pablo Picasso. It was painted in 1937. Um, In 1937, the the Nazis bombed this small town called Guernica in the north of Spain. And Pablo uh, painted this in response. This is actually a very massive painting. And they showed it at the World Fair in 1937. And it so moved the people that witnessed it. And as it went around on a a European tour, people started to flood in relief to rebuild the city. Remember, this is two years before World War II actually breaks out. Now, if I was to do analysis on this painting. And I can do that. I have a degree in art education, so I totally know what I'm talking about. If I was just going to analyze this, I'd look at it, kind of a base six-year-old view, and I'd say, um, it's got a cow and a horse and some people, and it's black and white and gray and big. And maybe it would get a little bit more complex than there, and we talk about balance and positive and negative space. But none of that affects me. None of that language, none of those questions about art transform me. None of those kinds of questions convince an entire um, continent that the Nazis are up to no good. There's a whole different category of questions that we ask when we engage with powerful works of art whether it's a painting or a book or a dance or whatever it might be, there's a whole different way in which we approach that that doesn't lead us to those kind of questions of analyzing it and breaking it down and deconstructing it. But there's something there that moves us and changes us and makes us more aware of the space that we're in. And I think that's what we're looking for when we approach Scripture. Too many of us are asking the wrong questions because they're not questions that lead us into encounter, that form us and shape us, that move us, that stir us up to action. When we only live in the world of that kind of drab analysis, it can lead us to miss the forest for the trees, and we come to some very surprising and and, and, um, very tragic conclusions about Scripture. So I want to show you a couple examples of what happens when we misread things through analysis. I'm going to show you a few charts. Let's put up the first one. Um, So this chart correlates the age of Miss America compared to the murders by steam, hot vapors, and hot objects every year. So as you can see, the older Miss America is, the more people are murdered by steam. Uh, The next one, this is a chart that shows you uh, the divorce rate in Maine in relationship to the per capita consumption of margarine in the country. So the conclusion that we could come to is obviously the less margarine we eat as a community, the fewer divorces there are in Maine. So guys, let's get on it. Um, This is probably my favorite one. This one correlates um, the amount of Nick Cage movies Uh, compared to people who drowned in a swimming pool. So what we're really doing tonight is we're rallying together and starting a petition to say, please, Nick Cage, for the love of God, stop making movies. That's why we're here. That's why we're here tonight, friends. So if we do the analysis, if we look at the text as if it's this flat, black and white thing that we're just supposed to pick apart and turn into math problems. We're supposed to chart 
on X's and Y's, we miss the point. And we justify the worst capacities of our faith. And this is what we do as humans. Those are the kind of places we live in order to make sense of our world and to try to control it. Consider Peter in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. Jesus is radiating the glory of God. Moses and Elijah show up. And what is Peter's response? Lord, it's good for us to be here. Can we build some tents to kind of put this into something that I can understand? And God in his, in his divine glory, and I'm paraphrasing here, goes, Peter, shut up. Stop trying to get it. Stop trying to analyze it and put it in some containers so you can understand this. Be present. Let this moment speak to you. It's so natural for us as human beings to try to reduce and diminish Scripture in order to control it so then we can make it do whatever we want it to do. But when we begin to approach it as a work of art, the different kinds of questions that we begin to ask lead us into that high expectation that we're going to encounter Christ in that place. You know, there's a difference between being inspired by Jesus and being transformed by the Spirit into his likeness. Let's look at that scripture again in John 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? What's the plan? How many of you ask God that on a daily basis? What's the plan? What's the, give me A, B, C, D. Give me one, two, three, four. Give me the five, the five points that all begin with the letter P so it's really convenient and I can take it and do so and so forth. <laughs> Thomas is just like us. How can we know the way? And Jesus, I'm sure this wasn't cocky, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. It's that kind of dynamic, lived-in encounter with the real and living Jesus that transforms us evermore into his likeness. And so how do we use Scripture specifically to encounter God with that expectation for transformation. I want to offer you a tool that I have found absolutely invaluable. Whenever I'm studying scripture, I do the study. I go to the commentaries. I read um, all of these ancients and, and their perspective on it because that is so valuable and we cannot underestimate that part of it. But I also practice what has been called Lectio Divina, or the divine reading of scripture. And it's about reading scripture with the mind and with the heart. And it goes all the way back to the third century. One of the first theologians, Origen, talked about how the, the logos incarnate, the word incarnate, was within Scripture. And that was always the expectation. In the fourth century, St. Ambrose taught it to St. Augustine, who becomes one of the, the main theologians of the Christian church. And so much of what we believe rests on his shoulders. And by the sixth century, it had become part of the tradition of so many monastic movements, especially the Benedictines. And so I want to just talk through uh, the general process that's kind of used by a lot of these monastic traditions and that I use. And I want to kind of offer that to you as a gift tonight and challenge you to be able to use this um, in your own study of Scripture. Uh, and then we're going to uh, practice in a more abridged version. So the first thing that we're to do in Lectio Divina, in the divine reading of Scripture, is that we're supposed to prepare. 
We can't just hop into Scripture bringing in all of our fears and regrets of the past and all of our worries and anxieties of the future and expect that we're going to meet God. Our heads are too filled up with, um, I love that Radiohead song that talks about refrigerator buzz. You know that kind of background thing that's going on in your mind? The mystics call it the monkey brain, and it's constantly going. And when we have an expectation to meet God, we have to first prepare ourselves. And so it's, an, it's important that you spend some time inviting the Holy Spirit to quiet down your mind and your spirit and your body. And that takes a long time sometimes. You know, but one of the things that I've recognized, the value of preparation, especially meditation, is not so much to fight all of the external thoughts that come in, uh, because then we just spend all of our time fighting these things that are coming in from the left and right, but rather to welcome them in. It's just part of it. To welcome those things in, not to treat them as enemies, but to treat them as old friends. But then to relinquish those things to Jesus as they come up. When we keep our eyes on him rather than keeping our eyes on those things that distract us, we tend to enter into his presence um, in a more holistic way. And so taking that time to relinquish the, our worries of the future and our regrets of the past and to offer those up to Jesus and to allow the spirit to bring us to a place of quiet. And then second, we read. And it's important that we read scripture slowly and deliberately. The Benedictines recommend that you read a passage of Scripture at least four times very slowly. And it's important that we have no other agenda but meeting God when we come to the Scripture, or else that analytical part of our brain will just kick right back up and we'll start doing that process. But just let the Scripture speak to you. Don't speak to it. Read it slowly and deliberately, each time seeing if there's perhaps a slightly different emphasis. So you prepare, you read, and then you meditate or a meditation is prayer of the mind. And it's important that you try not to immediately assign uh, meaning to the scriptures that you're reading, but allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to you. And this even takes a little bit of practice, knowing what does God sound like? What does God actually look like? And this isn't a time for you to dissect the passage and to break it up in its little pieces, uh, but it's really about sharing the peace of Christ in that moment. And sometimes you might be given a word, sometimes you might be given an image, sometimes you might see the story unfold before you. It's different for different people. And when we come in kind of narrowing our expectations of how the Holy Spirit is going to reveal himself to us, we can often shut off our ears to to hear what he really has to say. And so meditation is that quiet, submissive prayer of the mind and the imagination. So prepare, read, meditate, and then pray. I found it incredibly valuable in my life uh, to allow scripture to shape my prayer life. Someone asked me recently, do you ever run out of things to pray? And I said, well, not really. I mean, just because I've learned that there are so many types of prayer. But to allow whatever passage we've read, whatever we feel like the spirit has illuminated to us, to be kind of the, the, the launching point for us to begin dialogue with God and to start praying into whatever he might have to say to us. And sometimes it's a thing we thought we knew we needed the most that day. And sometimes it's something that we're completely surprised and delighted by. But to allow the scriptures uh, to shape our prayers. And then we enter into the final and perhaps the most difficult stage, which is contemplation. Contemplation is the prayer of the silent heart. The prayer of the silent heart. And this prayer is more a prayer of sitting in communion with God Uh, and just enjoying his affection. 
Contemplation can only happen when we don't feel the need to say anything to God, but we also recognize that he doesn't feel the need to say anything to us. Have you ever been with your beloved in that way? You don't really need to say anything. You're just present. That's contemplation. That's the prayer of the heart. And I think it's the most difficult place for you and I to arrive at, but I also think that's the place where real transformation begins. If we're not able to be silent with God, we're not able to hear him very accurately. And so we prepare, we read, we meditate, we pray, and then we contemplate. And so we're going to practice this right now. I'm going to do a reading uh, again from John. And we're just going to, much abridged, we're just going to take a moment, we'll be quiet before the Lord, and I'm just going to read through this passage very slowly, and I just want you to put yourself in a posture of submission to Him, giving Him permission to work in you. For some of you, this will be very conventional. For some of you, it's going to be very surprising and potentially even uncomfortable. Um, But our expectation, as I've been saying, is that when we come to Scripture with that attitude, God's going to meet us. And he's going to speak something to each of you that perhaps uh, you really need to hear tonight. So we're going to pray. We'll take a moment to quiet ourselves. And I'm going to read. So Heavenly Father, we come uh, to you through the words of your servant John with an expectation that we're going to meet you here. Holy Spirit, reveal something to each of us that we desperately, desperately need to hear tonight. Give us visions. Give us words. Give us story. Give us poem. Give us encounter with you, God. Something that goes down in deep to the depths of our spirit and changes us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord. Spirit, quiet our minds. Quiet our hearts. Quiet our bodies. Father, everything in this moment belongs. Teach us how to relinquish all things to you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, 
each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you that you meet us in some amazing, dynamic, up-close, personal, surprising ways. Father, I pray that this expression of your body, this flock, this collection of your children, we would never take for granted the opportunities to meet you, to sit at your feet, to lay against your bosom, to hear the beating of your heart, to know that we are your beloved. Father, we cherish these moments with you and with one another. Change us, move us, transform us into your likeness so we might reflect your glory into a world that desperately needs it. We pray these things in the strong name of, of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.